Hey there! So if you're a fan of this podcast, I have something I wanted to share with you. We have just put out a new guide on how to make walks with your dogs more fun and less stressful. It's all about integrating some fun training into your walks. I think you will enjoy it. Please go check it out. Totally free. You can download it at schoolforthedogs.com slash fun walks. And now for something completely different. Hi, my name is Annie Grossman, and I'm a dog trainer. This podcast is brought to you by School for the Dogs, a Manhattan-based facility I own and operate along with some of the city's finest dog trainers. During this podcast, we'll be answering your questions, geeking out on animal behavior, discussing pet trends, and interviewing industry experts. Welcome to School for the Dogs podcast. So if you are a professional animal trainer or aspiring to be a professional animal trainer, I'm guessing that you've probably heard of my guest today. If you're not, you probably haven't. Whether you're in one of those categories or the other, I am really excited to get to share this conversation with you with this pretty remarkable man. Now, I normally like to ask people how they first got into the field of animal training or or dog training in particular, but I didn't go into that with my guest today only because there were so many things I wanted to talk to him about and you can also get his backstory on a couple other great podcasts including the Animal Training Academy podcast with Ryan Cartledge and Hannah Brannigan's podcast, Drinking from the Toilet. The short version is he grew up on a ranch, began volunteering working with a guide dog organization when he was still a teenager, and then kind of lucked into a job working with exotic animals, which then helped mold his choices of what to study in college. He then spent more than two decades working at the Shedd Aquarium in Chicago, where he eventually was the executive vice president of animal care. And, well, I'm just going to let him introduce himself and talk about what he's doing now. I went to the animal fair, the birds and the beasts were there. The monk. He sat on the elephant's trunk. The elephant sneezed and fell to his knees. But what became of the monk? The monk. Uh, my name is Ken Ramirez, and I am the executive vice president and chief training officer for Karen Pryor Clicker Training. And uh, I have been training, gosh, for over 40 years now worked in the zoological field. I work as a consultant for uh, zoos and aquariums. I work uh, as a consultant for search and rescue dogs and law enforcement and guide dogs. And I do a lot of work in the conservation arena. So I have a lot of interests and I keep very busy. And in the field of dog trainers, at least, I'm sure in larger fields than even the dog training community, you are people's idol. You are an idol and a mentor to me. I'm really, I'm really grateful that you're taking the time to talk to me and with the School for the Dogs podcast listeners. You know, it's funny. I, I'm sure every industry is like this, but there are people who are become celebrities to you that are more important than the celebrities that you see on film, right? And you are certainly a person like that. Actually, I, I said to my husband, I'm going to interview Ken Ramirez. And he said, you know, oh, really? And I said, but you only know who that is because of because you're married to a dog trainer, right? He's not like someone that like everybody knows. And he was like, no, that, that's, that's true. <laughs> you feel like a celebrity, Ken? Well, I, I appreciate that. I, I don't. I don't feel like a celebrity, but it's very nice of you to think of me as one. But uh, uh, oh, I come just on! Another, be, just another dog trainer like you are. No, no, no. You're being humble, and you're also, I have to say, just one of the kindest people 
that anyone can ever come across. Every time we've met, I just think I think I aspire to be such such a good, kind person, someone who's so capable of walking the walk, using positive reinforcement with everything everything you do, every person you meet. Well, thank you. I, I, I think we all struggle with it from time to time, especially when it comes to uh, working with people. I think we, we grow up in an environment where our teachers, our parents, our coaches, etc., have ruled either with an iron fist or by saying no all the time. And so even though as trainers, we learn how to use positive reinforcement, we've never really been shown how to use it with people effectively. And that requires verbal communication skills that are different from the way we communicate with dogs. And so it confounds us and it makes it difficult for us sometimes to figure out how to apply it to a, an everyday interaction with a friend, with a colleague, with a spouse, with an employee, etc. So can your new book, The Eye of the Trainer, Animal Training Transformation and Trust, tell me how this, this book came to be. I, I write a monthly letter or an article that appears on the Karen Pryor Clicker Training website, and it's available to anybody who goes to the website. It's not directed just to our Karen Pryor Academy graduates. You don't have to buy anything to get the newsletter. It's just a matter of uh, signing into the website and, and seeing what I have to say this month. It's an excellent read. I do want to talk more about that in a second. And also, didn't Karen Pryor have a similar book that she put out of her letters? <laughs> She did. She did. We. Uh, it was one of uh, letters. Uh, I, I have to turn behind me at my bookcase to remember the name of hers. On my mind. That's what it was called. And that was her reflections on being a trainer. And she'd written over the years. And so, my book is similar in that I, over the five years that I've been in my role with Karen Pryor Clicker Training, I write an article every month, and we took some of the best of those and put them in the book. And I ended up writing, I think, uh, eight or nine new articles that are just in the book to sort of fill some gaps and places where I felt people might uh, have questions or want more information. So before we get into some stories from the book, I want to go back to the fact that you are such an amazing trainer of people. You're such a great leader, and you've come up with so many practical solutions rooted in behavioral science and rooted in the laws of learning to help so many species of animals. But why is it that this kind of training isn't used more with human animals? I know you see a little bit of it in people who work like in special ed, a little bit of it in workplace management in that realm. But I don't know, I just see what kind of things you've been able to accomplish in training animals from pet dogs to animals in the wild. And you do it with such grace and ease and you make it all so understandable. And yes, you're manipulating animal behavior, but the animals all love you. So why can't Ken Ramirez be president? Why aren't the smart training techniques that you use so beautifully? Why aren't human animals Benefiting. Well, I think it's an interesting question, and, and you pose a really great question. You know, why is it that the whole world hasn't been attracted to this science and doesn't use this science on an everyday basis? But I think, actually, we do see it used a lot, but not everybody recognizes that it is the science of behavior. It's interesting because when we start talking about the science of behavior and talk about it from the standpoint of using the various tools that we have as trainers, we find that a lot of people, even trainers, fail to recognize it as a hard natural science. And Susan Friedman, I love listening to her talk because she often talks about the fact that when I'm holding a pen in my hand and if I let go of it, it falls to the floor, none of us are surprised that the laws of gravity were in effect. Yet, when we manage to shape behavior and help a dog go to its mat or teach a child how to do a task, we don't marvel, we don't think about the science that's involved, and we marvel at, like, that's a particularly smart dog, or that child is a particularly bright in individual, and very little credit is given to the teacher or to the fact that the dog learned what it did or the child learned what it did based on the laws of learning. But what's interesting is, when you 
if you study business or if you study academics and you look at the instructors that really excel or the businesses that really excel, you do begin to see that they are applying the laws of that science accurately. They just don't necessarily call your attention to that science. I think in one of the, uh, in, in several of the articles well in the book, in one of the articles in the book, actually several articles in the book, I talk about a business book that I was asked to read when I was in another company. And my vice, my president gave us all this book to read about how to make a company go from good to great. And as I looked through that book, I later went back and wrote an article about the fact that they were applying all of these positive reinforcement principles. They just didn't refer to them as scientific principles. They just talked about business skills and how you apply them. I even did a, uh, an article about the uh, game Pokemon Go, in which yes. I talk about the fact that it's a very addicting game. And when you look at the way the developers of the game developed it, they put all of these wonderful reinforcers in there that helped motivate people to continue playing the game. And so I think as we look around our world, we see that successful businesses, successful teachers, successful parents, successful trainers use those skills. But I think it's because we have not been indoctrinated with the concept that these are all scientific laws. They are behavioral laws that always work but somehow that fact escapes us and we i think and i think part of the reason for this and i don't want to get into a big discussion about free will or the lack of free will or whatever it is that that makes us feel well because i think what it does is i think it's that discussion that pushes people away from the concept of training because there's this belief as humans that somehow when we use behavioral science, that that is somehow manipulation. But realistically, and again, I'm going to quote Susan Friedman, because she's one of the best at talking about this. When you and I both right now are wearing glasses, none of us think to ourselves, oh, that optometrist tricked us and used science to make us see better. Instead, we go, of course, he used science to help us see better, and we're very grateful for it. But somehow, when it comes to our behavior, We want to resist the fact that there is scientific laws that work on that because we want to believe that we are free spirits and we can do what we want and nobody's affecting us. But the reality is the laws of behavior and learning affect us every day. So I think I agree with you that we are being trained all the time by people, companies, governments, whatever, that in, in many cases are using positive reinforcement. You know, I like marketing, like I'm interested in, in marketing as a subject, because I think it's about training people. It's a form, it is. It's a form of people training and that, you know, if you're doing it well, it should be enjoyed by the trainee. But if you take the broader view, negative reinforcement seems like the major motivator of government, you know, or, you know, nobody's saying if you drive the speed limit, you know, you're going to be able to, you know, win some money. Nobody's saying like, why don't you pay taxes, you know, voluntarily. Everything seems to me like do this or else. And I don't understand why we live in a world when like that, if we have the ability to create environments for animals in the wild or domestic animals that are our mini worlds of creating environments where the animals can succeed and using smart rewards given with good timing to positively reinforce behaviors we like. If we have the ability to do that to a great extent with the animals we work with, why isn't that the powers that be are using more of that with us? I think it's cultural and it's historical. I think there is no question. I know many, 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 many people who use positive reinforcement in their everyday lives with their children, with their businesses, and they're very, very successful. But in the big scheme of things, we have grown up in an environment where punishers and aversive tools were used. And the reality is that punishers and aversive tools are sometimes easy. They're they're very quick to use. And as soon as you use one, it actually reinforces the user. And I think 
it's a, right. it's a, one of those weird examples of positive reinforcement I mean, of reinforcement at work. Mm-hmm. You know, if you punish a child, if you punish an employee, if you punish a dog, and you get results you are reinforced. And so you are likely and driven to do it again. And because in a society, we've never yet set up a big societal mechanism where we think about things in that reinforcement fashion. And so when we grow up in a world so surrounded by aversive tools, I think we naturally gravitate in that direction because we've seen it work, because we're not always thinking, how can I do this in a positive way? Why should I do this in a positive way? And so I have seen so many people employ good positive reinforcement, and, and I've seen it permeate a company, seen it permeate the way a, a parent raises their children. And in those small little bubbles, it's very, very successful. But we are constantly being influenced by the rest of the world. And so unless we live in that unique bubble, we get out of the real world, we feel compelled to do something because we have to avoid a fine or we have to avoid this problem. And it becomes a part of our everyday being. And so we have to individually fight against it just to use positive reinforcement sometimes in effective ways in the real world. And that's that's why it's a challenge. And I think it it's a cultural, historical thing that's around us that constantly impacts how we apply behavioral knowledge. Do you you look at the world, though, in that way of like, gosh, there are problems that with a a good dog trainer could be fixed? (laughs) I mean, all the time. Yeah. Okay. All the time. I mean, I I first look at it from a standpoint of my own life. In other words, I look at it when I run an organization, when I deal with people, how can I help make the people around me more pleasant, more productive, etc. And I try to utilize those techniques. And certainly, I believe one of the things that makes me enjoy, for example, watching trashy reality TV uh, (laughs) is because While I can't affect the world sometimes, when you watch one of those shows and you watch a show like, I don't know, Survivor, for example, and you're watching the decisions they make, I think to myself, gosh, if he would have just said this or done this, he could have gotten it without coercion or without force. But it's it allows me, I think about these kinds of things all the time. And for me, watching reality TV allows me to apply those things in a way that doesn't depress me. While if I look at what's going on in the world and I look at some government issue or I just look at the way we handle the pandemic right now and the fact that we're many of us are sheltering in place, but there are those protesters who are out there who don't want to shelter in place. If I think about how we could use positive reinforcement and behavioral technology in those situations, but I am not in a position to affect that change, that just sets myself up for frustration and then I'm not using good reinforcement on myself. And so I, I t- try not to dwell on those things unless I happen to be getting into an intellectual discussion about it with someone like you. Maybe if the government could just hire you. Okay. Well, then this brings me to my next question, which is about, well, so I am obsessed with, I've only seen like the three minutes that exist online, but I'm obsessed with your Australia, New Zealand TV show that was on in the early 2000s called Talk to the Animals. Yes. And I have rarely heard you talk about it. And it seems like the most fascinating idea for a show. Can you describe a little bit about it and also tell me where I can see it and why I can't see more of it? easily so sure. far? I can. I can I can give you a lot of history. And I, I don't talk about it because it, it, it was a while ago and it's hard to get episodes of it available at this point. It was a show called Talk to the Animals in which uh, we would, each episode, we would go into someone's home who had a a dog problem or whatever it was, a dog that dug up their garden, a dog that jumped on people when it came in, a dog that resource guarded, whatever. There were a variety of pretty typical problems. And I would come in and meet with the family, talk about what the problems were, and would give them a training plan, a positive reinforcement training plan to try to solve it. Then I would work with them for a weekend usually, leave my card and say, we'll be back in a couple of weeks. I want you to follow these instructions. Call me if you need anything, but really, if you follow these rules and try this out, you should make progress. Then we would go to a commercial, we would come back and we would be at a zoo somewhere where I would show 
an exotic animal who had a similar kind of problem and show how we use that same technique that I just gave that family to solve this behavioral problem with a tiger, with an eagle, with a dolphin, with a rhino, with a variety of different animals that we had at the zoo. And then we would come back to the house of the family that had the problem, and we would get to see how much progress they had made in a couple of weeks. And usually we would get to a point where they were able to resolve the problem. And we found that a very interesting way to combine my work in the zoological field. And one of the things that was a tagline that we used all the time in the show was, if we can use these techniques with exotic animals, imagine what you can accomplish with an animal that is predisposed to being around people. It's so much easier to do this with your pets. And while we're not literally talking to the animals, these techniques allow you to communicate with your animals more clearly. And in a way, you are actually talking to the animals. So we ended up doing two seasons of the series. And we actually were optioned to do a third season. But my schedule was such that I could not really afford to That program took 60 to 70 hours of time a week to produce, and I still had my full-time job at the aquarium at the time, which took 70 or 80 hours a week, so I was just really... The aquarium, for for those who don't know, but but the show was shot in Australia? All of the... And, um, And it was in 2002, is that right? It was, I have to look it up, but it sounds, it sounds about, it was, it was about 18 years ago, so yeah, that's probably right. The couples that I whose dog problems we solved, all of them were in the Chicago area. We actually filmed those parts of the show in the the U.S. So I was able to go for the weekend and work with those couples, be at my full-time job five days a week, and I was not going to Australia for that. But the show aired in Australia. The show was an Australian. uh, uh, We we aired it in Australia. The uh, first year of the show, even the zoos that we visited were always zoos in the U.S. The second year of the show, I always visited uh, zoos in Australia because that was where we were popular. It was a very interesting dilemma. In fact, the only reason we did not film the third season of the show was because of the fact that we weren't airing in the U.S. The National Geographic Channel was the producer of the show. It started as a, they, they were, it had originally been an animal planet, was, was going to do a second channel, but they ended up selling the production to the uh, National Geographic Channel. But the National Geographic Channel had a contract with another trainer, Caesar Milan, to do a show in the U.S., and it was not permissible for him to have a, uh, they weren't allowed to have a competing dog training show on the air in the United States at the same time. Oh, my God. So they continued to produce the episode. It was very popular in Australia. We did a couple of seasons of the show there. On the third season, we would have gone forward, but ultimately, my full-time job in the U.S. were more than willing to let me do the show because it was good publicity for the aquarium. But when we realized that we were not ever going to be able to see the show in the U.S., amazing. the aquarium said, you can continue to do this show, but it had to be completely on my own time. And, and when a show like that takes 70 hours a week and your real job takes 80 hours a week and you're trying to figure out how to do 150 hours of time in a, in a given week, it just, I could do that for a couple of years, but by the third year, it was just impacting this me in the first year you've my mind is blown so i in trying to find episodes of this show and this came out right when the dog whisperer started and it was it was uh, a couple years after the dog whisperer had, had taken hold and uh, yes but yes it was we we were in a competing show in the australian market and uh wow. our show did very well but we weren't based on contractual obligations. We were not able to bring it to the U.S. Well, I've noticed that there seem to be a lot of enlightened trainers coming out of Australia and New Zealand, and I have to guess that's partially why. It was, it was really interesting. I, I don't know why, if that was why. I know the program was very popular. We, uh, we aired on uh, the channel there opposite Australian Idol, and we actually beat Australian Idol in that's the singing competition in that time slot several times. And I had this momentary period of celebrity because I remember I was doing some contractual work for Disney and I was in uh, Epcot Center in Florida and we were walking by and all of a sudden 
I was swarmed with all these people who wanted my autograph and it turned out they were all from Australia and they recognized me from the show. So I did reach a certain level of celebrity status for a period of time with the people in Australia, but it, it was just for that brief period of time. And then it's been so long since that show aired. This, you know, this, this makes me really sad because I feel like there really was a moment where like it could have been Ken Ramirez instead of Cesar Milan on all of our TV screens. And that would have, been an amazingly good thing for so many people but mainly myself because <laughs> I think I would I think I, that like that show probably would have excited me and turned me on to the how incredible animal training is but probably I think that's the case for many people does it make you angry then that Caesar I mean I'm not saying this in like because you could have been a celebrity kind of way I mean I mean you are a celebrity to me but I mean just in that like Caesar Milan's cockamamie form of what we can generously call dog training took hold in this country, at least. And, it, you know, yeah. that, his show took hold in a lot of countries. And I think that it was his charisma. It was his, there's a number of different things about the way the show was produced that was very popular. It was, and it made for very watchable television for the average person. And do I wish I had gotten into that slot? Sure, it would have been nice. I, do I wish someone else had gotten there? That would have been nice as well. I know yeah, you're going to say at, something really generous right now about Steve. No, I, I look at things like that and I realize <laughs> things happen the way they happen, and I only can control certain things. Right, so, but it's more, for me, it's more like, I'm not angry for Ken, I'm angry for the dogs of the world and for myself, you know, 18 years ago. But also, to tie back to what we were talking about before, I mean, I've, I've thought a lot about I've asked myself a lot, why is Caesar Milan so popular? And I think to some things you've said, there's a certain charisma, there's a certain underdog quality. He shows the quick fix, which might be because of editing or not, but it's satisfying and punishment shows result can show results right away and makes for good TV, da 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 da, da. But I also th wonder if part of it has to do with um, like the way all of us are schooled growing up in the kind of government that we are controlled by. It's a well-produced show, and I certainly understand why people were attracted to it. And it's not a show that's on the air anymore as far as new episodes of the show. It's still in reruns in, in a variety of places. And, you know, I guess in the big scheme of things, my take on it or my look at it is rather than being so focused on that style of training, I still find myself saying, you know, I long for the day that the average pet owner recognizes the value in having good trainers. And if everybody recognized the value of having a trainer, everybody who brought in a dog from a shelter, everybody who owned a pet realized the training could be valuable to them, there we would not have enough trainers to go around because there'd be so much work that we would have for everybody. But so many people don't even recognize the value of training. So what I always tell people is if we get to that point where everybody recognizes the value of training, then I'm going to focus my attention on saying, here's why you should focus on this style of training. I still am a very big proponent of telling people why positive reinforcement is the better way to go and what the advantages are. But I'm just happy that someone will reach you're out like, to a trainer. So you're like talking to like a group of anorexics and you're like, first we're going to just talk about the benefits of eating food and then we'll talk about the benefits of healthy food, but let's just put food in your mouth to begin with. I yeah. think that's okay. That's an interesting way to look at it. And frankly, I've never thought about it that way before, but I think for me, I think it's the reason I haven't thought about it that way is because the way I see it. People are training their dogs all the time without professional help, whether or not they're meaning to train their dogs. Animals are being trained all the time, and it's a matter of right. us thinking about it. Right. And I know that, and you know that, but not everybody in the general public recognizes that. And so I just want to clarify my comment. I don't want to get hate mail from positive reinforcement trainers saying that I'm not out there advocating for good positive reinforcement. I am. But... I don't want to waste my energy bashing people who do it a different way than me right. when I still have plenty of people who aren't even accepting training as a formalized way of dealing with their dogs. I want to push toward that. I want to make that bigger. And if I can get to the point where I have reached the fullest number of people that I can then I'll focus my attention on this other thing. But the reality is when it comes yeah. to trying to convince people about good training, mm -hmm. you're going to be more 
successful at reaching those people who are open to your ideas as opposed to those people who've already accepted another way of doing things. And I'm happy to get into a debate and happy to help people realize why transitioning would be good. But it's a lot of energy to put there when there are so many people who just could benefit from simple learning how to train positively. And if once I reach all of those people, then I'll put more attention on that other group. And I just, it's a matter of choosing where to put my energies and believe I've got lots of work to keep myself busy. I don't want to put a lot of energy on that. I think my thoughts on it are more along the lines of the problem is people don't think about behavior. Not so much people aren't thinking about dog training. It's like that if in school kids had one hour of training on (laughs) how to understand these things. And my hope is that it's something people can start to learn about as they learn about dog training, which was my experience. I didn't ever think about it. And actually the, the rabbi who married me and my husband he had a lunch with us a couple times before we got married. And, and I, I made some comment about forces controlling our behavior. And he, he was like, oh, well, you know, there's nothing that could ever be predicted about human behavior or it made some sort of comment like that. And I was just like, oh, I'm not going to argue with the rabbi, but gosh. Uh, That's a great example of the way most of us have brought up in mm-hmm. thinking about behavior. And it's a challenge and we make little inroads in trying to help people recognize it. But I don't know why. There's so much resistance to, to recognizing to going that. Going back wait, to what you were saying about, before about manipulation, did you see that movie on Netflix about Cambridge Analytica? No, I, I'm familiar with it, but I haven't seen it. You know the general story of the Cambridge Analytica scandal? Yes, I do. Well, it's really all about manipulation. And it's just, you know, we're all shocked about how manipulated we are all the time. But so many great stories in this book. I'm particularly interested in hoping that you can talk a little bit about some of your conservation training that you've done, because I never knew about anything about conservation training until I started reading your work and hearing you talk about it. And I think it would interest listeners because it's an area of animal training that I think many people probably, I mean, we think about animal training helping maybe at a zoo or an aquarium, dog trainers, et cetera. But can you explain what conservation training is and then maybe tell one or two of the stories that you share in the book? Sure. Conservation training is simply a way to use this knowledge that we have of behavior to help adjust, change, or modify the behavior of animals in the wild. And it's conservation training, particularly because we get the permits and permission to do this kind of training because we're usually working with an endangered species or trying to correct a problem that is challenging these animals, usually because of some human encroachment issue or some human activity that has cause that animal's population to decline. And it's about using the knowledge of how behavior works to shape the behavior of these animals in the wild, in their everyday setting. And it's using what's called remote training. Remote training is this type of training where you are impacting behavior, but the animal itself never really realizes that it's a human that's putting the reinforcers there or putting the punishers there, we are out of the picture as far as the animal's concerned. The most notably is a project I'm working on right now in Zambia, in which we are trying to reroute a centuries-old migration route that these elephants are taking. And these elephants migrate through a little corner of the Democratic Republic of Congo, where every year, 50 to 70 elephants are slaughtered every single year. And For 20 years, a number of efforts were made to offer the poachers another form of employment, another way to earn money, a different way to put it into tourism, anything that could be done to entice them to move in another direction. But it was never successful. And so finally, I I didn't know that about that. So they were like trying to do the human training first because that was. Yes, yes, yes. And one of the challenges, of course, with human training is difficult enough. But when you're talking across cultures and across countries where the people of Zambia felt very strongly that they wanted to protect their elephants while the people of the Democratic Republic of Congo seemed much less interested in that, it became a very difficult thing. And so we finally decided to put forth a project in which we tried to teach the elephants to avoid the southern southeastern corner of the Democratic Republic of Congo and route them another route, still getting to their final migration location, but simply changing the route for about 150 to 200 kilometers. And we've been very successful at that and very successful at using 
positive reinforcement to guide the animals toward a preferable migratory route. We've only been at this for a couple of years now, but so far we've had several years of success. The challenge is they only migrate that direction once a year. So we only have one shot at it each and every year. But by teaching them a new migratory path that still leads them to their eventual goal, we are finding that we are able to save 70 elephants, 60 to 70 elephants a year. And that population of elephants that has been on the decline over the last 20 years for the first year in 2020 has shown an increase because of the fact of this rerouting of the elephants that we've done using this positive reinforcement technique. And this elephant project is just one of several dozen projects that I've been involved with over the years. When I first started working in conservation training, there was a lot of resistance to it. Most people thought, you can't change the behavior of wild animals, and how are you going to do that? And you're going to impact so many other animals. And, and so we had to do a lot of environmental impact statements and demonstrate to people that there were a lot of different ways that we could approach this. And now that we've seen several successful projects implemented and seen these projects be successful, more and more often we are beginning to see wildlife biologists recognize that this might be a viable form of shaping behavior. And so I've been involved in a variety of these kinds of projects, and that's just one of them. Uh, the polar bears? Polar bears are another one. We were facing an re- interesting dilemma. Polar bears, due to climate change, were making their way into Alaska further south and into villages and towns more and more often. And these polar bears were posing a threat to the public, to the dogs. And so we came in with a three-pronged approach to trying to reshape the polar bear's behavior. The first approach, we started with a pilot program in one small town, and they were very committed. They had an average of three to 400 polar bear incidents per year that were causing a threat to their dogs and a threat to the citizens. And so we went in with a three-pronged approach, a behavioral approach. The first approach was to help educate the locals as to what to do with their garbage and what to do with meat and stuff that was attracting the polar bears and get rid of that. Secondly, the village had these sentinels posted in watchtowers around the village, and these sentinels would be watching for polar bears, and whenever polar bears would approach the village, they would shoot at them, not to hurt them, not to kill them, but just in an effort to scare them away. But the problem was these villagers didn't understand behavior. They understood if they shoot at the polar bear, it'll scare them and they'll go away, but the polar bears usually would just circle around and come another direction. There was no connecting this firecracker uh, shell to any behavior in particular. So we went in and helped them understand that if you want the polar bears to avoid things that are human, if you're going to apply this firecracker shell, this rifle shot that's going to scare them, wait until the nose of that polar bear sniffs of the tire, sniffs of the garbage can, sniffs of the fence post, and suddenly the bears begin to learn, oh, it's all of these things that have a human smell that scare me. I should avoid that. And it helps teach the bears to avoid the village. And then the third phase was to use a baiting or luring technique to help guide the bears to a source of natural food so that they would avoid the village and begin to find other food in other places. So by making food less scarce, by making the application of their gunshots more precise, and by leading the bears to another location, we managed to, over a period of five years, replicate this project with 46 different towns and villages throughout northern Alaska. And most interesting, the average number of incidents per year prior to the application of these training protocols was about 325 polar bear incidents annually. When we implemented the training protocol, the average number of incidents dropped to four just four. And again, it was just a really good example of how the little behavioral application, we can adjust behavior in the wild and make changes that allow the bears to thrive and allow the humans to thrive. And it's that training triad, the dog training triad, I call it management timing and rewards, or in this case, punishment, managing the environment, figuring out how to 
reward or punish the appropriate thing with the appropriate timing. And, and that's what I love about your story. First of all, I also love that it's one of these like, oh my God, this is so simple solutions where I'm sure that when you explain this to the people you're working with, they must have had that sort of reaction of like, oh, this makes so much sense. Right? Absolutely. After doing a pilot project in one village, we were easily able to get buy-in by all the villages to replicate it in other villages right. because it made so much sense. And, and so much of the time, good dog training is like that, right? It makes so much sense. The other thing though- But, it's, but it is fascinating to see how without a trainer going in and pointing out this is what you right. should do. It never occurred to them that the right. timing of that gunshot just by being off by a half a minute was a huge difference in what the bear learned. Well, that's the other thing I love is that you really didn't change very much about this. I mean, you, you changed many things, but the actual gunshot was there before and after. It was just the utilization of it. It's, you know, I think it's a really good example of using punishment but the, do the, the dogs, the polar bears were already being, it was already in place and it was just not being used correctly. And by using this thing that was already in place, you made it so much better using this little tweak. And, and it's one of the things that has been, while I am a big proponent of positive reinforcement and I push people in the direction of using positive reinforcement when possible, in so much of the real world, people use aversive tools. But sadly, they don't use them very well. And so yes. consequently, anybody who has to punish their child or punish their dog or punish an employee over and over and over again probably isn't actually using punishment. They're just doing something that's mean or that's aversive because if it were punishment, it would work. Exactly. Right. It's tragic and amazing. Well, thank you for sharing that story. I also was hoping you could tell people about your work with butterflies. The Butterfly Project was a fascinating project for me. It, it came out of the conservation work that I was doing, and it was a project that sort of fell into my lap. There was a um, botanical garden in the UK that every year they did a themed botanical garden. Every summer they set up this huge botanical garden in a soccer stadium in, in the UK. And every year they had a different theme. And in 2015, their theme was about the symbiotic relationship between plants and animals. And they decided that with their botanical garden, they wanted to have a huge butterfly population. And they ended up having well over 10,000 butterflies that were all around the stadium. And the director of the butterfly garden had this idea that maybe for the gala performance where they were going to fundraise for these conservation projects and for wildlife uh, restoration or uh, wild habitat restoration that had to do with plants and, and the flora of the area, they thought she wondered if butterflies could be trained to fly across the stadium on cue. So they would fly across the stadium in this beautiful way with the symphony orchestra playing. And everybody that she contacted first in the UK and then throughout Europe constantly said, I don't know if you can train butterflies. But often many of those individuals would say, but you know, there's this guy in the States who claims that anything is trainable. He always says that you can train an earthworm. So if he can train an earthworm, I bet he could train a butterfly. You should contact him. And so she tells me, she calls me up and she tells me that five different people had suggested that they didn't think it was possible, but if anybody was going to be able to do it, they should contact me. And she realized after that many people were telling her to contact me, I would be the person that she should talk to. And so she asked me about the possibility, and I said, look, I don't know a lot about butterflies, but I know if you have butterfly biologists on your staff who understand the sensory mechanisms of butterflies, meaning that understand what they eat, what you can use to reinforce them, understand if they can see or hear so that we can cue them, they should be trainable. And realistically, having them fly from one end of the stadium to the other end of the stadium is no different than teaching your dog to come to you when called. It's, it's really just a very simple procedure. And so she says, well, that sounds great. Would you like to be a part of this project? And I said, love to. And then I hung up the phone and kind of freaked myself out thinking, oh my God, I don't know anything about butterflies. They're pretty and they fly. Uh, so <laughs> then we began doing our research and turned out that there was a number of reinforcers we could use. There was nectar and there was fruit and there was a variety of things. And we tested out a couple of different cueing mechanisms. But ultimately, 
we basically did a, a pairing of a, a cue and the delivery of a reinforcer. And it was a classical conditioning pairing where we just sort of sound the cue, here's the reinforcer, sound the cue, here's the reinforcer. And after just two repetitions on our third training session, we were all out there with these bowls of nectar. We sounded the cue and lifted the bowl, the, the tops off the bowls. After on our third session, when we did it, thousands of butterflies all hovered into the air immediately knowing that their nectar was going to be available to them. And on that third training session, when I saw all these butterflies hover off the, the branches and move toward the bowls, I said to myself, this is going to work. And sure enough, in 19 days, we managed to train the butterflies to fly from one end of the stadium to the other end of the stadium on cue. And we presented it for the gala, and it was a very big success. It's and so I, cool. I, I even myself was so moved when I finally saw the final behavior. I thought, oh, that's so beautiful. I can't believe <laughs> I trained it. It was very, a very so uh, he, emotional so you experience. A, what were the cues for the butterflies? We ended up, the butterflies had self-divided themselves into three different groups, by species, etc. So we had a big group on the north end and another big group mm -hmm. on the south end and another big group on the east end. And so we decided to try three different reinforcers and three different cues. And all three of the cues ended up working. We had a, uh, a subsonic vibrating cathode, which is this vibration that sounds a very high piercing tone. And we used an LED light. And those were the three different cues we used, each for the different group of butterflies. And so because we trained them on a different queue, we actually were able to actually have three separate flights during the London Symphony Orchestra played this wow. beautiful piece. And then on one queue, the butterflies took off from the north end. And then on the next queue, they took off from and the south end. What I love about the story too is that butterflies have short lives, you explain. And so some of them ended up learning from other butterflies, even if you had yeah, I think, no one to touch them. And one of the things that surprised me when I started working on the project, nobody bothered to tell me about this. As we were working with the butterflies, one of the biologists said, well, this particular species has a life expectancy of six weeks. And I went, what? You mean... <laughs> You mean these guys are going to all be dead by the time this gala performance it's is going to be called? It's very hard to train a dead butterfly. And yes. And they said, well, not all of them. Just this one species has that short lifespan. First, I was freaking out. Many butterflies have several-month lifespans, six-month lifespans, etc. But what we did find is... <laughs> the, the butterflies were coming out of their cocoons on a pretty regular basis and as the new butterflies would join the population we didn't have to really train them in the sense that we they just followed the other butterflies and learned to fly based on what the other butterflies did so we had a very successful so project it was just one summer of training and as i said we trained it in 19 days maintained the behavior for about two and a half weeks more the gala happened and that uh, was very, very popular, very successful. And you're so generous with your time. I don't want to eat up too much of your time, but I did want to ask you one final question, which sure. is, as I mentioned to you, I have lots of mom friends who have babies around my daughter's mm -hmm. age. And I've had several conversations with them about sleep training. And I'd say most of them ended up going the cry it out method with... Right children, which I'm not super comfortable with it because I think if any animal who is like so small and vulnerable is crying, it's probably because the animal has a need that needs to be met, even if I'm not certain what the need is, rather than it like manipulating me, I think. I should say I don't have majorly strong feelings in one direction or another, but decided that for our daughter, we, my husband and I decided we weren't going to do that. However, I have not come up with a very good training plan to get my daughter to sleep through the night. And the only thing that really makes that okay is the fact that I can drink a lot of coffee throughout the day. <laughs> <laughs> so I was wondering, expert trainer that you are, if you have any recommendations for shaping good sleep in um, I do and I don't. I'll say this. When my daughter was born, which... My daughter's 31 now, so this was 31 years ago. And as someone who was working with animals all the time, and as I, as I said, I've never thought of training as being exclusively an animal-related activity. It's just a, it's a behavior, and all creatures behave the same way. I was determined that I would teach my daughter using nothing but positive reinforcement. My wife at the time was not necessarily fully behind that, but when it came to sleep training, she was very happy to suggest that if I wanted to take over feeding at night, that 
she was all for letting me do that. And if I could teach her to sleep through the night, that was going to be up to me. And so I embarked on that process. And so we, at I want to remind everybody that this was 30 years ago. There's all sorts of new thoughts about breastfeeding versus bottle feeding and a lot of different opinions about that. And I'm not an expert on that. So I don't want to... And I want to remind people that I just did this with my daughter. I'm not recommending this as a protocol for everybody else. That I just used a lot of logic and thinking to myself, how do I teach my daughter to sleep through the night? And recognizing that early on, babies need nutrition on a regular basis. And so they need it at regular intervals. The key for me was I found that like with most creatures, my daughter would wake up crying, ready to eat at pretty predictable times. It would vary sometimes, but it was pretty predictable about that at 2 a.m. or at 4 a.m. or whatever the times were. And so I realized that what I needed to do was be prepared. I needed to be up, not when she was crying, but before she woke up and cried and be waiting there next to her crib, ready to take it. And then when she would wake up, I would engage with her, play with her, and then because she was quiet, engaged with me playing, I would feed her. And then I was able to pretty accurately predict. And then as I was able to do that, once my pediatrician suggested that she could go four hours, five hours, or longer periods of time without the bottle, uh, without milk, would just play with her for longer periods of time, find a number of activities that would engage her. She would wake up. I would do some of those things. I would hold her. I would get her act active with me so that she wasn't crying right away. And then I would feed her the bottle at you know five minutes later, and then 10 minutes later, and then 15 minutes later. And what ended up happening is she then began sleeping 10 minutes later and 15 minutes later. And I gradually over time, I want to say by the time the pediatrician felt like she could go six, five to six hours without a bottle. That was really all we needed because I was a night owl. My wife was an early morning person. So she, my wife would go to bed at nine o'clock at night. I would take over the feeding regimen all the way up. And then my wife would be up by five or six o'clock in the morning. She got a good night's sleep because she went to bed early. I then went on, continued sleeping and she took over at that point. But we were able to get my daughter, Julie, to, to sleep for that five or six hours uninterrupted in about six weeks' time, seven weeks' time, so once we started working on it. Okay, but yeah. I was just using the typical training techniques that I'd always plan. used. It was a shaping plan, exactly. Yeah, okay. Well, my takeaway from my own situation, which is my daughter wakes up at some point in the night and comes to sleep with me, which is not a terrible thing. I'm kind of okay with it. But if I want to have her sleep through the night, maybe I need to at least figure out exactly what time she's waking up so that I can preempt it. Because it's, yeah. it's all such a blur. <laughs> yeah. And, and for me, it was, I was very much paying attention to it. And I was all often a late night sleep. I don't usually go to bed till two or three in the morning anyway. So from nine o'clock when my wife would go to sleep, till 2 a.m., I was already awake. So it wasn't like I was having to force myself right. to stay asleep. I would just move my workload or whatever I was doing into the room and watch for it and began to predict and saw how predictable it was. And I was able to get there in advance so that I could occupy her and keep her engaged, entertained, and then reinforce her so that crying isn't the thing that got her the bottle. It was other activities and other play that we were doing, and we were able to gradually approximate that longer and longer. Yeah, and I think there are so many issues revolving around child care and raising kids that, that have to do with not only understanding behavior, but there are all sorts of cultural issues and other things that, that come into do you, play. Do you have feelings about cry it out as a method? I, I just think that, you know, a kid crying... It's their way of just saying that I, they need something. And unless you really learn to differentiate between the I want attention cry and I've just hurt myself cry, I think there's a risk in allowing a, a baby to cry. I'm not opposed to somebody saying, let them cry it out. But I feel like I, I, as a parent, feel like I'm not being attentive to their needs. You know, when I, my, when I always tell trainers of, of animals that if, if your animal's behaving in, a, in an odd way, you need to be very attuned to what that means. They behave that way for a reason. And so I decided that crying 
serves a purpose. I just would rather not have the crying. And so let's find another way for you to indicate that you want food or that you want to change or that you want something. And crying doesn't have to be the way to get that. And so that really helped a lot. But what it requires is me to be very attuned to the baby so that I am able to provide those needs. Otherwise, it backfires on you. And well, from a dog training perspective, and, and I definitely would not have had this thought process before I got into dog training, but it seems to me that like if the animal, like if a dog is barking, 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 and you put a shock collar on the dog or you do whatever you need to do to stop the barking, you might get rid of the barking, but you're not necessarily get, getting rid of like whatever the issue is that's causing the barking and it can, and it can then come out in some other way. And I'd rather, you know, my baby not get sick or something. Right. Well, that's the important thing about recognizing that so much about problem solving is about the science of behavior is looking at the function of that behavior and, and understanding that crying serves a function. And so what you need to do is if you're going to replace it, you need to still meet that baby or that dog or that animal's needs. And so crying serves a purpose and you have to still meet the goals, whether that's change the baby, feed the baby, do the thing that it needs. Right. You just would like it to indicate well, that it needs those that's things. That's why I wonder happen. about the like babies who are crying it out. Is there some sil- are they still feeling like silent agony, but they're not making any noise? I mean, right. it's hard to imagine. Yes, because they seem like they probably are going to grow up to be fine individuals. But that's where my that's where my brain goes. Um, and, but you know that goes right to your question. You can do things in five different ways, and it still works. And it turns out that if you're a punishment user, you can still work. If you're a positive reinforcement, it still works. And so you you don't even look at the behavior aspect of it as much because you're finding a solution anyway. Well, Ken. Out of all the different types of animals you could be focused on right now, your job at Karen Pryor puts you in charge of helping so many of us help people with their dogs. Thank you for for being a dog trainer trainer. I enjoy it, and hopefully it'll be something I can do for a long time. I went to the animal fair. The birds and the beasts were there. The big baboon by the light of the moon. He's open hair And have you seen the monk? He sat on the elephant's trunk The elephant sneezed and fell to his knees But what became of the monk? you enjoyed this conversation and I hope you will check out Ken's book. I will link to it in the show notes and also to his 1999 book which should be in every animal trainer's library. Animal training, successful animal management through positive reinforcement. It is a thick book but that's really a textbook whereas The Eye of the Trainer is filled with just remarkable stories of Ken working with all kinds of animals in every part of the world you could possibly imagine. You know, even if you're not that into training, I still think if you like animals, this book is just such a pleasure to read. You know, there was that book series and the TV series, All Creatures Great and Small, which was all these stories of vet. Well, this is the animal training version of that series. And I just want to mention one of the stories that it includes just to demonstrate what a powerful man Ken is when it comes to seriously impacting the welfare of the Earth's wildlife. A few years ago, Ilana Alderman, who is an amazing animal trainer and one of my good friends, called me up in tears because she had just learned that Ken had been shot at and they weren't sure he was going to make it. And of course, all I could think is, why would anybody want to shoot Ken Ramirez? You know who? Elephant poachers. He tells this harrowing story in the book, and it just drives home how impactful training-based conservation work can and could be. You can learn more about Ken at clickertraining.com. He's been going live there every Thursday from his Washington State ranch. These are really excellent broadcasts. 
You can also find him on Twitter at KenKPCT. Special thanks to Lizzie and Bill, a.k.a. Toast Garden, for doing a version of Animal Fair for this episode. You can find them on YouTube, youtube.com slash toastgarden. Thanks so much for listening. You can support School for the Dogs podcast by subscribing, leaving a five-star review, telling your friends, and shopping in our online store. Learn more about School for the Dogs and sign up for lots of free training resources on our website, schoolforthedogs.com. 